Mac Power Users, Episode 29, Workflows with Jason Snell. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. David, how are you? Doing great, Katie. And I am really especially excited today to have Jason Snell, who is the editor of Macworld Magazine, on with us. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've never really felt any special kinship with uh, the number 29, but now it's one of my favorite numbers. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, This is a a particularly uh, important episode for me because I've got to tell you, Jason, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I was a freshman or a sophomore in, in college, where I wanted to be 10 years from then, I probably would have said I wanted your job. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, uh, that dates you by saying that you were in college 10 years ago. So, um, because sadly I was in college 20 years ago. Well, so, but my life happens. took a little bit of a different turn, but it all, it all turned out for the best, but, um, really thrilled to have you on our workflows episode and, um, appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Um, basically what we do is we talk about we tend to talk about productivity quite a bit, and, and we, we want to know how, how people are using their Macs to get what they do done. So the workflow show is basically two questions. Uh, what do you do with your Mac, and how do you do it? So we want to talk a little bit about Jason's history uh, with the Mac, but before we do, let's take a quick break and talk about our first sponsor, Smile on My Mac. And seeing as we have Macworld's editor on this show, it seemed only appropriate to talk about PDF Pen, which recently won a Macworld Editor's Choice Award. You know, the thing about PDF Pen that is really amazing to me is that OCR function. You know, for 50 bucks, you get an application that does OCR for you. Uh, You know, if you buy Adobe Acrobat Pro, I think it's like $450 for that feature. You know, it's, it's just, I don't know how they did that. And it's it's fairly accurate OCR. I've I've run a bunch of stuff through OCR, a bunch of stuff with some kind of technical jargon in it, and it seems to be very accurate in what it's picking up. And I tell you, with the uh, new update to the iBooks app on the iPad, I think that I'm going to see myself using a lot more PDFs on my iPad and really using that probably how I should have been in, in the past as as a great document viewer and being able to search within the PDFs on the iPad and and pretty much having entire file cabinets of data at my fingertips that have been OCR'd by PDF Pen is is going to be a huge help. Yeah, PDF Pen is a great option if you're using Preview and you're finding it wanting. Uh, it's a, a really no-brainer. For $50, you get the OCR built in, You've got a whole bunch of additional annotation tools. You've got additional management tools. Uh, you can have a, a library. It comes with a library full of uh, uh, grammatical correction tools, but you can also like put your signature in there. Uh, you know, they really went out of their way. Uh, they give you most of the functions that that people need from Adobe Acrobat Pro for a fraction of the price. Uh, PDF Pen is a great sponsor. I'm really glad to have them on board. And if you need to go that next step and you want to start creating some of your own forms, PDF Pen Pro is only 100 bucks. So really getting to some of that in-depth functionality of a much, much more expensive program still at a fairly minimal price point. Well, thanks, 
Smile on my Mac for supporting the Mac Power users. Yeah, you can find PDF Pen and all of their other great software on their website at smileonmymac.com. I want to start off with a, a little history. You've obviously been around the Mac for a while. How did how did you get into this area? I um well when I was in high school, see now I'm really dating myself. When I was in high school, I used a Mac um a little bit, but um not a lot. I, I had an Apple II, um, and uh, our newspaper in in high school, um, the stories came out on um, on a laser printer. We had a laser writer, and uh, you would basically type the stories into Word and with the margins set very narrowly, and then you would print it out on the laser writer and cut it out and use wax and mm-hmm. paste up the, the newspaper. When I got to college, the, my college newspaper had just installed uh, Macs on every desk and PageMaker. And at that point, essentially, the editors were also the designers. They were doing all the page layout. And it was brand new, and everybody was struggling with it. And I, I came in as a, as a sophomore and, uh, and uh, just sort of gravitated toward it and figured it out. And that made me valuable. I started like typing in articles, and then I was editing articles, and then I was laying out pages. And, and that's what got me into the Mac, to the point that at the end of my sophomore year of, high, of college, right at, you know, Having used the Mac for just a short period of time, I, I remember going to the, the university bookstore and buying a Mac SE. Um, and that, the, you know, basically that was that. I, I've been using the Mac ever since. So that yeah. my college newspaper is what, what kind of pushed me over the, over the top uh, to the point where my senior year, I was the editor of the school paper and I was also like running network cables around the office so that we could network the computers together. With which Apple at that Talk. time was. Yeah, which was a crazy idea. And we don't need to put the files on a floppy anymore. And everybody can print it once. And that was, you know, exciting. So we've come that's a long way since talk. then. But that's, yeah. I know it is. I remember buying a, you know, an external hard drive. And, and you know, it was like, this is, this is 10 whole megabytes. Woo, you know, stuff like that. But that was, <laughs> and, and that when was you started up that first hard drive, it sounded like an airplane, right? Yeah, you like know. a hovercraft <laughs> uh, flying away from you. Yes, exactly. Now you also remember then probably uh, how valuable those laser printers were and that you had to print everything out on the dot matrix until the very, very end. You know, I, I, so I have to say, I, I don't want to overdate myself here. Uh, you know, th- we didn't have any dot matrix printers when I was in college. I, I had one when I, was, when I had the Apple II. But, um, but we were, we were um, you know, we had laser printers. We had a couple laser writers and we actually had an image setter that was a 600 DPI that was wow. the one we used for the final one. It was, and that was the size of like a Volkswagen Beetle, mm-hmm. but um, it but it printed eleven by seventeen paper, um, full so full spread um, tabloid size for our, which was the size of our newspaper. So, um, so my my printing doesn't go quite that far back. Although we didn't we didn't have a scanner until toward the end, so we actually kind of shot every photo with a with a a, a stat camera to half tone it and kind of waxed. We we still waxed the pages down, but most of the page was just a a one continuous strip from out of PageMaker. Um, so that, that's sort of my, my era is, is I was, uh, um, you know, the dot matrix thing was a, uh, kind of a distant past sort of thing. By the time I was using the Mac, we, I never really, I never had an image writer or anything like that. And in fact, my senior year in college, I bought a laser, a personal laser writer, um, which cost, you know, like 800 bucks or something like that. But I used that for years afterward and I, I just, I was spoiled. I, I wasn't going to not have a, a, a laser printer at that point. So now you make me feel old. Thanks a lot. Sorry, sorry. There's a there's a clear hierarchy here. Yeah, exactly. The Dow matrix. I'm in the it. middle of it. Ha ha. <laughs> you couldn't use the laser printer until it was very final draft, and if if you used it more than that, they'd send you a bill. I mean, it was terrible. 
Yeah, well, they were really expensive when it got started, but that was, you know. So anyway, I'm not one of those guys who's like, I was there. We ha- we have a lot of readers who are like, I was there in 1984, and uh, you know, I I wasn't there, and I, I mean, I had an Apple II in 1984. I I wasn't I wasn't, you know, I, I was I was in eighth grade, so I'm not, I'm not one of those guys. I I started using the Mac in about 1990, 1989, and and uh, started working at a Mac user actually before it it merged with MacWorld in uh, when I was in grad school. So that would have been like 90. Summer of 93, I guess. So you would think someone uh, who's editor of Macworld Magazine, you're, you're probably around a lot of Macs and have an opportunity to kick the tires on a lot of pretty cool stuff. What? Yeah, yeah. You do get the opportunity to, uh, to try out the, the new toys. And, and sometimes you, you know, it depends on what you're reviewing. I've reviewed a lot of laptops where I've, I've I mean... <laughs> This tendency now to have software be locked to particular systems where you have to like authorize and deauthorize has bitten me so many times. And it turns out not only are the they're the the you know the the programs where you have to deauthorize and reauthorize, and that's a pain. But if you remember not to wipe your hard drive on the <laughs> old computer before you move, it's not so bad. But it turns out there are also a whole class of apps that don't just make you authorize or deauthorize, but they pay attention to what system you're adding it to. And if you, they see you bouncing around a lot, they just shut off your your um, authorization and I have to write these companies and say, yeah, you know, I pretty much might use five or six laptops in a year if I'm reviewing laptops and uh, please turn my software back on because that'll yeah. happen is I'll be on, a, I'll be on one laptop and then I'll, I'll clone my drive over to another one and use that. And then I have to give it back. So I have to clone it back and then I move on to something else. And you know, others they're, they're all, all the Macs are, are coming through. So even if I don't use one, like as my main system for a while, we, we get a chance to sit down at them and, and kind of poke and prod and, and try them out. It's a lot of fun. I mean, every single Mac model that comes out, um, every single Apple hardware product really that comes out, we buy and, uh, and test. So we've got them in the, in a, you know, in the macro lab. Yeah, that's a good question. So what hardware do you use as, as Jason's hardware? You know, what do you carry around with you? Well, uh, you know, we, this may lead us on on a on a little bit of a tangent, but up until up until about two weeks ago, my main system was a was a, a MacBook. Um, lately, it's been a MacBook Air for like the last three or four years, and I, and I mean that that I would um, use the MacBook Air at home, and then I would bring it in and on my back in a backpack and plug it into an external monitor at work, and it was my main system. I didn't have a a desktop system. I I just had an Air, as low powered as it was. That was my main system, and before that, I had a a black MacBook, and uh, you know, before that, a uh, iBook or twelve-inch PowerBook, and a whole series of them. And it's only been in the last two weeks where I now have um, the Air is now sort of just stays at home or when I travel. Um, and I have an iMac, uh, a twenty-one and a half inch, one of the new iMacs on my desk. And that change largely came about because I realized I was going home and, with that laptop and not af- ever actually getting it out of the backpack. It, it, it had become irrelevant at home largely because of the ipad and so that led me to say you know what why don't we just keep a laptop at home for travel put a nice speedy system on my desk at work and um i'll just travel back and forth with the ipad so that's what i've been doing i've had a similar experience i uh, we were up due to upgrade some computers in our household and my wife needed a new laptop so i gave her my macbook and i actually upgraded to a macbook pro because I'm not carrying it around as much, so it's not so important to me to have a, a portable MacBook anymore because the iPad has replaced it for uh, the mobile stuff. So you know, it's yeah. kind of interesting how that works. If I wasn't, 
you know, if I wasn't working at Macworld where we've got a, a decent hardware budget and if I didn't have this sort of like two-year-old MacBook Air that I was using anyway, um, that was the other option was really to just get a, a MacBook Pro and park it at my desk and not take it home and only un- unhook it when I absolutely needed to be out somewhere with a laptop. So that was that was sort of my other option. And that all kind of comes back to the the iPad just sort of changing the workflow. So now for me, I've got to remember to bring files home or throw more accurately, I think, throw files in, in Dropbox so that I can get them back out on the other side if I need them, um, which is weird for me because I, I'm used to having... Um, all of my stuff with me at all times. I, I was like uh, carrying around my key data all the time and I and it took a long time for me to kind of give that up. But I think I finally um, I, I finally realized that it didn't make a whole lot of sense because I wasn't really needing it in transit and that um, I was suffering at work because I had the MacBook Air, which was such a slow system on my desktop. So now I'm, I'm trying this. It's different. And I, I always had a uh, an Apple display hooked up um, for the air, so that I was never using the air as the primary display at work. I have a, a, a Apple Cinema display, so I've still got that. And now I've just got the iMac attached, so I've got kind of two big displays now instead of a big one and a tiny one. That kind of so. brings up a, an interesting topic that I put a little later in our outline, but we can we can talk about it now. And and that's the don't idea. Tell them, yeah. we, don't tell them we have an outline. We You're have a little bit of an outline. Just entirely spontaneous. Absolutely. And that's syncing data. We did an entire show on syncing data because it seems to be something uh, that is still very frustrating, but is getting better, especially I think Dropbox is a big reason that it's getting better. Um, But more and more people are having multiple systems. You know, they've got the desktop, they've got the laptop, and now a lot of them have iPads and iPhones that they're using um, as little computers as well. So um, it sounds like this is a relatively new problem for you, but what is your your great plan for sharing data with yourself and keeping everything in sync? What kind of tools are you using? Is there any kind of method to your method madness? madness? Well, uh, you know, one of the big steps for me was um, putting everything in Gmail um, and accepting that I was not going to keep my mail store on my hard drive. Um, so that was a big step that I did over the last couple of years. I, I used to be a Eudora user and I switched to Apple Mail and I started uh, embracing IMAP and uh, and embracing Gmail and actually uploading a lot of my old Eudora mailboxes that I had laying around as, you know, what if I need an email from 1998? Uh, how will I do that? And and I just stuck them all in Gmail. So n- that made it a lot easier because you don't need the, uh, you don't need the, the mail to go with you. And uh, I'm using Dropbox a lot as the, uh, as the file, uh, file transfer mechanism that if it's a file I'm working on that I might want to work on at home, I just leave it in Dropbox. I've, started to do some um, linking of, uh, of preference folders and things in Dropbox. So like my BB Edit preferences folder is now sitting in uh, Dropbox and that's largely so that I can change my BB Edit preferences in one place and they change everywhere um, just because it got frustrating. To, why isn't it working? My one password files are like that too. So I, I'm trying to use the Dropbox folder as a, as a, a pretty smooth way of, of being able to work in those different locations. And then my mail is on the server, so it's not as big a deal anymore. And occasionally I have those moments where I'm like, oh, where's that file? I thought I put it in this folder. Oh, right. I put it in the folder at work, not the folder at home uh, that I still have had to, to work through. But it hasn't been, it, it hasn't been a problem. And, and that's actually one of the reasons why I felt confident in making the switch is that I feel like the syncing technology is far enough along now that I don't need to have you know, all my master email, files, calendar, everything on one system 
um, or else, you know, it, it's going to be a mess. I, I, I feel like we've come far enough now that I can, um, I can no longer, I, I can stop doing that, um, which was behavior based on the reality of the world as it was five years ago or 10 years ago, but not based on the reality of the world today where we've got tools like Dropbox or mobile me bookmark syncing or, you know, uh, all sorts of other tools or Google calendar so that I don't have to carry it all with me. And in fact, I can get it on my iPad when I'm in transit. And, you know, the syncing technology really has made remarkable strides in the last couple of years, something like Dropbox just two years ago. I mean, it wasn't, you wouldn't even think of something like that working. And now we just all take it for granted. Well, I mean, there was like iDisk and things like that, but it doesn't, even now, I mean, uh, I don't know why Apple doesn't just go ahead and buy Dropbox. Oh, or, please, or, let them do that. Or just steal it and, That's fine and, too. and, and rip it off for iDisk, because iDisk is unusable and Dropbox is fantastic. So, um, yeah, we've come a long way and Dropbox and SugarSync and a bunch of these other utilities. That, I think, I think, <laughs> something clicked and um and now people are starting to understand and it's it's not an easy idea but the the tools have come along far enough now that people have really started to get the fact that you can use these tools and kind of move around and the fact I want to explain Dropbox to people and I say look you can put a file here and it's everywhere it's in all the folders on all your computers you can get to it on your iPhone you can get to it on the iPad you can log in from any computer anywhere in the world to the Dropbox website and get the file um, people that appeals to people now because they don't have just the computer at work and then they go home and the, there's a computer at home maybe but uh, it doesn't need to do work and so they don't need to worry about it. I mean, you just every everybody's got all these devices now, so the syncing stuff has to work, and that's the good news is it's actually working pretty well. And with Dropbox, I also even with people that have just one computer, I just install it for them anyway and say all your important documents just you know work on them in here your word processing stuff and already and they're backed up. Yeah, and versioned. Saved, saved bacon for a lot of people I know. Yeah. Huge. I mean, versioning too. I mean, something that Dropbox does, and especially if you pay for Dropbox, but I think there's some small degree of it in the free version that it's not just that you're, you've got a backup, but that you've actually got the previous versions of it, that file too, so you can roll back to a previous version, which is just amazing stuff that used to be an incredibly complicated sort of backup system um, that you don't have to worry about anymore. You just throw it in the box. If memory serves, you get 30 days free versioning with a free account. And if you pay, I think it's unlimited. It just goes back yeah. it's as old as the file That's, is. Yeah, exactly, which is kind of brilliant. Uh, you know, there's you got to go to the web for that because in the Finder, there's no real UI for that. But, um, but that, what a great feature if you, you know, irrevocably destroy a Word file by deleting something that you want back later and can't find it. You can actually go and get the version of that Word file from 14 days ago, and there it is. So as an editor, I imagine you do a lot of writing or work with words a lot. Yeah, yes, both. Writing, editing, absolutely. So how do you go about doing that? Well, so my main my main text editor for a long time has been BB Edit. Um I write I write most of what I write for Macworld in BB Edit. Um I used to use Word. Uh, I stopped using Microsoft Word at some point. I can't actually remember when. For a long time, we Macworld's like official turn in your story uh, format was Microsoft Word. It isn't anymore, but um, now we actually turn in most of our stories in HTML now, believe it or not, because so many of our stories come from the web that it's easier to just turn them in with HTML and they get mapped when they get laid out in InDesign. They get mapped to HTML styles, get mapped to our print styles, um, which is kind of interesting. Um so I stopped using Word um, 
for for that purpose, but I had already been using BB Edit to write most uh, most of my stuff. I just, you know, the fact being somebody who does not write like a lot of these apps, like Word and Pages, they're designed for somebody writing for like a virtual piece of paper. It's like the end result of what you write is going to be something you print, and it comes out on a piece of paper. And so, like, like they'll show you the edge of the page and. You can see exactly where your your lines will break onto page two, and as somebody who works on the web and um, and in uh, print magazines that are laid out in you know a very detailed layout in InDesign, the concept of you know a page is completely meaningless. So those those apps have never appealed to me. In fact, my when I wrote in Word, I wrote in the draft view because at least the draft view in Word didn't show you a page break except as a dotted line. Um, my biggest pet peeve in word processors of all time is the ones and a bunch of a bunch of them do this where you can't you can't tell it to not show you the page break as like show you the bottom margin of your document and then the end of the page and then some gray space and then the beginning of a new page and the header and then your text starts up. And there's nothing worse when you're writing a paragraph to have the first two lines of your paragraph disappear across this virtual page break that is, you know, if I was writing a term paper, it would be different, but I'm, I'm, I'm never writing a term paper. So um, anyway, so BB Edit appeals to me because BB Edit is just completely abstract. It's just put text here and it could be code. It could be, you know, web pages or, or programming code or just text and um, so that's that's what I, I use for most of my Macworld work. Um, and I tend these days to write using Markdown, which is the markup language that John Gruber sort of invented, um, the guy who does Daring Fireball. Um, and I've got, a, I've got a script that I wrote that a lot of people at Macworld have that um, you can write it in Markdown and uh, then hit the script and it turns it into HTML. So I, I, I write in Markdown even though I know HTML because it's a little bit easier uh, it's harder to make a mistake that breaks things if you write in the markup language like Markdown because you don't have to make sure that it's, you know, that you put a quote after the URL and the end angle bracket in the hyperlink reference. You know, it's just easier to 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 do it with little brackets and parentheses. And so I've sort of gravitated toward that. Um, and I did the same thing. I write yeah, Markdown. It's faster. Yeah, it, I mean, even though, you know, I know how to make a hyperlink. Uh, quite well and have for a long time it, it it is easy to forget you know forget that closing quote mark or type a h e r f instead of h r e f and then it breaks and with markdown you just let the script do it at the end um okay, so, so markdown or multi-markdown i'm just using markdown i mean i know that there's that mark multi-markdown kind of extension on it um i've never i've never even bothered to sort of figure out what that, what what that's about? Um, I use Scrivener. That's the other writing tool that I use, and it's got multi markdown support in it. And I, I know that it does, and I just have never, it's just never, I've never explored that. I think didn't we do? I think we did a whole show on Scrivener, didn't we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> I love Scrivener. That's yeah, I, me too. I I um, the last four years I've done National Novel Writing Month, um, out of which I've gotten. Two novels, actually, a hundred thousand word novel and a, about a hundred fifty thousand word novel, and in various states of rewriting. Um, but I did those. I did the first half of the first one in Scrivener or in BB Edit, and then and uh, outlined it in Omni Outliner. And I switched at some point in the middle of that one to Scrivener, and I, I kind of haven't looked back for anything that I'm doing that's long form. Um, Scrivener is the is the app of choice. So it's BB Edit for the short stuff and Scrivener for the long stuff. 
Did you did you know about the OPML trick with the uh, Omni Outliner and Scrivener? It, no. It, it exports Omni Outliner exports an OPML and Scrivener imports OPML into its structure. So you can so outline you, something in Omni oh, Outliner yes. and just export it as OPML, import it into Scrivener, and you're and you're rocking. Wow, I could have I could have really used that three years ago when <laughs> when I had to rebuild my outline in in Scrivener. Although yes. that was probably worth it because it made me think about it a little bit more. But Scrivener, what a great tool! I, I mean, I've 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 introduced a bunch of people to it, and and um, I've never I've never really gotten a complaint. I mean, I, I remember telling Andy and Nico about it and and raving about it at a MacWorld Expo a couple of years back, and and uh, it warms my heart every time I hear him rave about it now because I know that I'm the one who told him about it, or at least one of the people who told him about it, and he was a little skeptical and. You know, but that's, I mean, and there are a lot of good, actually, in that genre of these kind of long-form writing apps. There are a lot of really good ones for the Mac. It's just Scrivener, for whatever reason, is the one that seems to work the best with the way I work. And it just, it made sense to me, and I didn't struggle with it. And I think it, I think part of it is it doesn't try to do too much in terms of the editing. I mean, a lot of the apps have, like, you can make hyperlinks and, you know, drop in rich text. And, you know, I was using BB Edit. I, don't, I really don't need those things. I think there's been a real renaissance of word processing the last few years. We're getting lots of interesting entries where it used to be all, you know, Microsoft Word or, you know, or the highway. Well, the, the, you know, the, the text editing stuff that's the core, um, you know, foundations in, in OS 10 means that as a developer, you don't have to focus on like writing a better text editor, like specifically, they, they, they free you up to build the, you know, features around the text editing and that, that opened the floodgates and in, in a good way. One question I had, which may not be as much of a workflow question, but how has you you mentioned short form versus long form, and you know BB Edit for more short form, and and Scrivener for more long form. But I've been a subscriber of MacWorld magazine, and still am, really before MacWorld had a huge presence on the web. And I know you guys have been on the web, you know, pretty much since the web's been around, but maybe not all of your stuff and all of your stories. Has changing for the web versus uh, writing for a magazine really changed how you've done things over the years? Um, well, yeah, I, I guess. Um, I mean, there are so many different ways to answer that question. Um, I've been writing, I mean, I've been writing stuff for the web forever. Um, but you're right, there was also sort of this idea of writing for the magazine. There, there's just a lot less of that now. So back in the Back in the old days, you would have things that you'd write for the web and things you'd write for the magazine. And then a lot of times you'd pull things from the web and like format them in Word and then turn them in for the magazine or pull things out of the magazine format and then have to reformat them for the web. Um, you know, these days we all we just sort of use the web workflow and then it ends up in the magazine. But, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, writing is writing. It, it's not that it's not that different. Sometimes it's. Uh, Issues of markup, you know, are you going to HTML or are you going to a page layout program or, or are you going to a copy editor who doesn't want to see HTML and is used to the format that you've used for 10 years? Um, you know, that, some of that stuff factors in. Um, but, I, yeah, so I don't know how to answer that. I mean, we, we, used to do, we used to do a lot of things magazine first and, um, and then there was a period of time where it was some of it was clearly for the magazine and some of it was clearly for the web and, and you would switch back and forth. And now most everything is, is prime is initially for the web and you keep print in the back of your mind, but you know, you're writing the pieces for the web first and then, and then picking the stuff and maybe, 
mushing it together and putting it in print. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that, that definitely makes sense. And it kind of leads me on to another question is, is you obviously have to collaborate quite a bit with your writing with other people, whether they're sending things to you or you're sending things to copy edit. I mean, it, I'm sure the, the workflows, um, you know, vary depending on who's writing and who's editing and where it's going. Um, but how are you passing all of that around? Because is it, you write it and it goes on the web and nobody, but you looks at it until it's published or I'm, I would imagine there's usually a couple of intermediary steps in there. Right. So, so there are a few different ways it can work. Um, I think for the, for our web stuff, um, the most common way we we approach that is um, somebody writes it, whether they write it in straight HTML or they write it in something like Markdown and, and run the conversion script on it. They end up with the HTML and they put it into our content management system. And then, um, or, or they send it to somebody who puts it in the content management system and it sort of depends. But um, uh, that's that second pair of eyes. And sometimes it's uh, a more formal edit where you say, here's my story. And then um, like with our bloggers, this happens all the time is they, they send the story or they put it in the content management system and say, here it is. And then you look at it and you edit it and then you push it out. Um, so at that point, you know, as an editor, you're editing in HTML um, or alternately, if you're, if uh, for whatever reason, the story needs to go faster than that, you put it in and then you send a link around to everybody on this, uh, uh, a link into our staging site and say, um, can you guys check this out? And that, that's really uh, a sanity check in many ways. It's, it's, if you see something wrong or it's something else that seems crazy in some way, let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to push this story live. Um, so there are degrees. There are degrees where you know, you'll see a story and, and say, I need to work this over. And other times, you'll see it and say, looks good or change this one thing or there's a typo here. Um, so it can vary the amount of scrutiny that that um, that you put in it. Um, so, yeah, um, the other kind of collaboration we do is um, building stories where you really have multiple people writing them. And for that, we use Google Docs. And Google Docs is far from perfect, but, you know, we really need a way. We do these stories a lot of the time that are these um, FAQ stories. It's like what you need to know about X product from Apple. And um, we couldn't do those stories without Google Docs because you'd have a, you know, a merry-go-round of like, you know, here's the word file, you updated. Here's the word file, you updated. And it kind of gets passed around. And now um, and it, would be, it would be days before you'd get resolution. And now you put up a file in Google Docs and say, put the, put the FAQs here. And, and, you know, there are like five or eight or ten people in there um, anticipating questions or phrasing questions that they've seen on Twitter or in our forums or whatever, and you put in the questions. And other people are going through and they're answering the questions. And other people are going in and looking at the answers to the questions and adding things to them or, or changing them around or leaving notes saying, I'm, you know, are you sure this is right? I'm not sure I'm seeing this. And so you get this frenzy of activity. And at the end, um, you, know, you end up with actually a pretty great article, but it may be written by seven different people and you couldn't ever even parse out who wrote what. Um, and you'll do it in a day. You'll do it in a few hours sometimes. Um, and, and that's a huge boost for our productivity and for the quality of our content and for our timeliness. And, um, and that's why I really love Google Docs. Um, occasionally, it'll be a, a slightly less crazy collaboration. But like when the iPhone 4 um, announcement happened at the developers conference, um, Dan Morin, who's a senior associate editor for Macworld, he and I were 
in the press area and we covered the event live. We live blogged it. And then we went off to um, the uh, area where they had the demo units of the iPhone um, and spent a half an hour with the iPhone. So we came back and we said, well, we got to write a hands-on with the iPhone 4 story because we had our hands on it. And that's a logical story to do. We wrote that in Google Docs. And that was a little more traditional in the sense that I think I wrote an intro and he wrote a couple sections and I wrote a couple sections. We basically like started outlining it and started writing the sections that we were comfortable writing and then started editing each other's sections and then we pushed it live. Um, and again, that kind of speed collaboration, it just it, it, would, it would have happened using some other means, but it would have been just so much slower and that story, instead of being posted in the afternoon, would have been posted the next afternoon. Yeah. So, so now how do you get... Um the documents that you're working on your Mac onto your iPad when you're going to go home if you want to work on them later, or do you? Well, on the iPad, you know, if I'm in transit and I'm working on the iPad, I mean, like, I'm not, uh, I'm not a believer in writing anything of any length on the iPad unless you've got, like, the external keyboard. It's just, it's not going to happen. I, I, if I'm going to write something, I will get out the laptop and I will write something. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a believer in the iPad as a long form writing device, unless you're, unless you're desperate, unless you're traveling and you want to travel light and you're going to bring the external keyboard. But, um, uh, so, so if I need to look at something, I'll throw it in the Dropbox and I can look at it on the iPad. Um, but generally what would happen if I needed to work on something is I would open the laptop at home and it would sync over Dropbox and then I would work on it. And I've actually been working on the story the last couple of weeks and, it's been in the Dropbox and, you know, I keep opening it in one place and then the other place and then back and forth. And it's been, it's been seamless. But in that interim step with the iPad, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll throw PDFs and images and stuff in the, in, in the Dropbox intending only to sort of open them up on the iPad. And that's been great. So I do use it for that, but I'm not sure it's part of my kind of writing and editing workflow. Um, and the Google Docs stuff on the iPad is not strong enough um, it's really a kind of a view, but not an editing interface for it yet. I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll get better, but, um, it's not, I have posted a story on our website using the iPad. Um, our CMS uh, web form is capable enough that you can do that, but it was painful. <laughs> you know, I do a lot of text and, uh, I'm always tracking text for work projects and for my blog projects and I use notational velocity and simple note. And I find it works really well on the iPad because, you know, Simple Note's a good enough word processor on the iPad. And if you've got a keyboard, you can get in and modify and add to and proofread or do anything on that on the little device. It's pretty nice. And then when you get back to your Mac, it's already automatically synced over. And uh, I'm really finding that to be a good workflow for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've done some of that with um with an if if I'm starting something fresh, it's it's easier than if I'm editing something that already exists. Um, but I, I've done that and I've done, uh, you know, stuff with pages and, you know, it's just not all fully formed yet. But, I mean, you can definitely write on the iPad. I just feel like, um, you know, it's compromised enough because you kind of got to set it somewhere. As a, as a writer at home, I tend to sit on the couch or sit on, on the bed and write. And if you're at a, ta- the iPad, you really have to be at a table to do it because you've got to set it on the table and then have your keyboard. Um, which is less than ideal for me. But again, if I was traveling somewhere and I really wanted to pack light, um, you know, I, I would think I would, I would think twice before packing a laptop for any trip at this point, just because, you know, I would, I, first question would be, could I get away with just the iPad and, a, and maybe a keyboard? Yeah. And, and the word processors and 
who knows, maybe even BB editor. Something's going to end up on the iPad eventually to make that a lot more practical. I hope so. I, I love Scrivener on the on the iPad too. And I know Keith, the guy who writes Scrivener, has been pretty dubious of that because it's a whole lot of work and he's still working on Scrivener too. But um, I actually wouldn't even say I need all of Scrivener on the iPad, but I would love to be able to throw a Scrivener project file in Dropbox and be able to open it in on the iPad and sort of see the different parts and like open one and see the text from it. I, I don't necessarily need all the features, but if I could like keep my project and open a, open a part of it and make some edits or add on to it, that would kind of be enough. Um, and same way with BB Edit. You know, I don't need all of BB Edit necessarily, but I, boy, I would love to have BB Edit on the iPad. And I hope Rich Siegel uh, at, B- at Barebone Software can make that happen. Uh, but there are some tools out there now, and it, it'll get a lot better. I really believe that we're going to see this whole second wave of apps now that the iPad has come out and people have started to get it and it's been successful that um, they're going to realize, wow, they sold 2 million of them in 60 days. And I understand now how people are going to use this thing that we're going to get this next wave of apps that um, is probably a lot better than the stuff that's out there now, quite frankly, Uh, a lot of which was written sort of on spec kind of thinking, well, the iPad's coming out. uh, Maybe we should write something for it. Yeah, you know, I'm such a Scrivener nerd. The the developer Keith is located in the UK. Yeah. And he wanted, you know, to get an iPad early because all the US developers already had them. So I, I acted as his local agent and uh <laughs> Oh nice. Good for you. I, I sent He facilitated sent, a transaction. Well, I sent iPads to Macworld UK and MacVelt in Germany. So I was I was looking out for my Macworld boys overseas. Yeah, but I, that's I, great. That's great. James Thompson who writes Drag Thing and and uh, PCalc and a bunch of other stuff. He uh, he got somebody in San Francisco to do it. I, I offered, but he already had a, a a representative to to send it along. A lot. I suspect a lot of European developers, especially, had to go through that. Um, but well, I put a nice card in there that said, you know, he didn't know me anything because I love Scrivener so much. But if he did want to make an iPad version, it would make huh. me very happy. <laughs> yeah, I think I bet he'd give you a a code for a free copy if uh, <laughs> if he ever if he ever got to that point. That's um yeah, it's a great it's a great little app. I would love. Like I said, even if it wasn't like a full-blown thing, just com- file compatibility to get to my projects would be great. Cause, yeah, just to work on what yeah. you're working on. Yeah, let me open up the chapter I'm working on and write some of it. Would be great. Now, you guys at Macworld, it used to be a lot of writing, but now you're doing a lot of video podcasting and audio podcasting um, as well. I don't know how much involvement... I know you have involvement in terms of uh, being the talent for those shows, but I don't know... <laughs> how much involvement you have in actually making them happen and, and spitting them out to the web. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you're doing your podcasting? Well, our, our audio podcast, um, basically, if, if, it's, uh, if it's Chris Breen doing it, then Chris Breen does that himself at home, and he sort of Skypes people in, and he assembles it all together in GarageBand and outputs it. If we're doing it in the... Um, listeners to the Macworld podcast will know that we also do these kind of roundtable discussions that are here at the office with various people. Um, those are done in our little podcast room that we've got that's kind of got padded walls and is our, our sort of cheap attempt at soundproofing. Um, and I usually actually run the, run the board for those. I, so I'm, I am pretty involved. And, and if it's a complete, um, a complete episode that's just like the one after the iPhone 4 event, I mean, we went downstairs and we recorded, and then I came back up here. And um, here's a here's an amazing thing: putting together a podcast on a on a modern, brand new iMac takes a lot less time than on a MacBook Air. Yeah. Huh. Uh, okay. Who knew? 
Um, so anyway, yeah. So downstairs in our podcast room, we've got uh, four or five mics and a um, it's a Firewire. Um, we have a Firewire mixer that goes into an iMac running GarageBand. So we've got multi multi track input, which has really vastly improved the quality of the sound. Um, and then I I assemble it in GarageBand. Um, when we have to Skype people in, you know, we, we actually will mix the Skype into the mixer and then pull it back out to the, to the iMac so that it's on its own track. Um, and, uh, for them and, and the people on the other end are sort of listening to the room noise through the mic on the, on the, um, on the laptop the, or, or on the iMac, uh, depending on if we bring in a laptop to do that trick. So, um, you know, it works pretty well and, um, and you know, it's it, GarageBand is a, a nice, fairly straightforward, um, tool for that sort of thing. I, I, I can trim some stuff in Sound Studio, um, and I use Sound Soap to pull out the room noise that is there. Um, and uh, yeah, that's. I mean, it, it's pretty straightforward. Um, it's a PreSonus uh, FireWire mixer that we use, and that that is we used to use an analog um, analog mixer, and the uh, the FireWire mixer is fantastic. It, it getting every voice on its own track, as you probably know. Mm-hmm make a huge difference in terms of quality. So, and Chris does something similar, but he doesn't have like multiple people at his house. So he, he tends to piece it all together, uh, over Skype. Um, and for video, we we don't do as many videos as we used to. We're still trying to figure out what the right way to do video is. But when we were doing them every week, um, I was one of the five people on the sort of wheel of video hosts and, um, those, those, we basically shot ourselves. So you'd set up a camera and shoot your own video and you'd take, uh, you know, video screenshots and you'd kind of slap it all together in, uh, iMovie or in Final Cut Express. Um, Rob Griffin's always used Final Cut Express. I always used iMovie. Um, those took a lot of time. I mean, it, it, that would be a whole day usually to make one of those videos because of the time it takes to shoot it and then edit it. Um, maybe not a whole day, but the better part of a day. Um, so just so, uh, time intensive to, to make videos. Um, it's a lot of fun, but it, it just, it was a huge amount of, huge amount of time. Well, maybe you'll just start making them on your new phones. Yeah. Well, you know, who knows that that'll be, it'll be interesting to see what happens if you've got the ability to just, uh, edit, edit HD video right on your phone and then output it. Um, I, I, uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be really interesting. Although it's funny being associated with a brand name, even if it's not a television brand name, you'd be surprised at how high the expectations are for the video quality. Because, I mean, we all, even when we were shooting this stuff ourselves, we would get a lot of comments from people who were like, come on, guys, you need better lighting and more, you know, better, better editing and, you know, your microphone should be better and all of these things. And, and it's fascinating because from our perspective, it was like the only way we're ever going to do these videos is if we do them ourselves entirely by ourselves with essentially no budget because there was no budget to do them. But because we're Macworld and, well, they have a magazine, they're a legitimate outfit, there suddenly became this whole other level of expectation, which was you're going to have professionally produced videos on your website. And um, the reality is that that was never going to happen. So... Um, it's an interesting uh, kind of conflict because we're not professional video producers, nor are we ever probably going to be, uh, yeah. you know, but, but that was the expectation level. And if we were just some random guys doing video tips, um, I don't think the expectation would have been there, but we weren't, we were official media professionals doing video and, uh, that raised it. Um, and it was hard to live up to because we were, you know, 
people with jobs doing other things who are volunteering to do a video once a, you know, once a month. And you have other deadlines and, you know, video is exponentially harder than audio. Yeah, well, there's that too. The amount of time that it takes to do a, a, a four-minute video for Macworld.com, um, you know, I could do a lot more material <laughs> in another medium like writing, which is what we're all sort of hired to do is the written medium. Um, that said, you know, there are times when video is the right thing to do. And, and I think in the future, what you're going to see from us in terms of video is we're going to do videos when video is the right thing to do, whether it's showing you how to do something that you really have to show it. I mean, the best example is when the... Um, one of the first videos I did for Macworld was when the the um, last generation MacBook, not the current unibody, but the previous generation, first debuted. And it was the most accessible accessible hard drive um, they'd ever put really in a Mac laptop or for years they'd put in a Mac laptop. Um, the iBook, like you had to remove 80 mm-hmm. screws to get to it, right? So yeah, the new MacBook came out. All you had to do was take out the battery, unscrew three screws, and pull off this little um, little aluminum panel, and there was a drive you could just slide out. And I started writing a story about it. And then I thought, well, I need photos. And I started thinking about taking pictures and then how I was going to label them. And I had that moment where I said, you know what? I could show this on video in 45 seconds. And so that's what I did. I got a video camera and I like held it in one hand while I was showing, you know, unscrewing with the other hand. Literally just, you know, just me. Um, it took an hour to post it. And, you know, that video got, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. And the yeah. link got passed around. And and that's an example where video was the right thing to do there. So I do believe there are things where you really need video because people need to see it. And the amount of effort you'd put into you know, writing a description of what you will see instead of just showing it is, is the wrong way to go. So there are things words are good for and there are things that pictures are good for and there are things that moving pictures are good for. And the, the, the struggle is, is to try to find out uh, what, um, you know, what is the best use of each medium. Like podcasting is great for the give and take and for – you know, I, I like our podcasts when when there's a lot of a give and take between multiple people instead of it being just sort of like the one voice in this article and a different voice in this other article. And also because you get a sense of personality and people can make jokes and 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 it's sort of lighter and and you go off on tangents. And um, that's what that, what's great about podcasting is you get that. And and so you got to find what's right and not just sort of force stuff into uh, one medium or another because, some, well, somebody says we ought to do some videos. If you don't have a good reason to do them, you shouldn't do them. You know, Chris, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Jason. I was thinking about Chris Breen. Chris Breen, uh, yes. The, we all ponder Chris from time to time. He's yeah. the guy with the hair. <laughs> He's the guy with the hair. So anyway, Jason, the, um, you do a lot of stuff on the web, and we've come a long way since the days that you know Steve Jobs said that you know the Internet Explorer was the best web experience on the Mac. Uh, what are you using these days for browsing the web? I am on. Um, I use Safari to browse the web. Um, I tried Chrome and Firefox and all that, and I just I like Safari the best. I feel comfortable in it. Um, Firefox has some interface weirdnesses that I don't really like. Um, yeah, I feel like Safari's faster. Um, yeah, so for whatever reason, I use Safari. Um, my wife really likes Firefox, so she's uh, she's a Firefox person. But and, and a bunch of people here are into really into Firefox, and I, I just I've never gotten it. So I'm a I'm a Safari guy. I mean, I'm, I'm open to open to others, and I try them all, but um, I always end up coming back to uh, to Safari. Yeah, I was hoping you'd like Chrome or something because Daisy. I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, Katie and I are both. Uh, big Safari users. Yeah. My wife, my wife Daisy is a Firefox user, but uh, I, I like Safari and every time I try something else, you know, it's fun for a few days, but I, I like the way that Safari fits the operating system and 
the key combinations just work and it, it accepts, you know, services and plugins now. And it, you know, it just, it seems to work better with Mac OS 10 than anything else. So I, I still stick with Safari. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I can't be a rebel on that, on that yeah. score. I, I, I'm using Safari and, you know, and I, I, Safari and iTunes and mail and iCal, it's kind of boring. Um, you know, I used to be a, a, a Eudora rebel, but I'm, I'm not now. So I, I'm, sometimes you just kind of give in and say, you know, Safari works for me and it doesn't work for everybody and that's fine. But for me, you know, it's, it's comfy and it, it is, uh, Chrome and Firefox are, are cross-platform apps that are designed to be, you know, run on all these different platforms and Safari was really designed from the ground up as a Mac app, even though there's a Windows version. It really is, you know, it, it's got some native stuff that the that those other apps just don't have. I mean, it, it's got fewer functions. It doesn't have the all those extensions that Firefox has. But you know, I I just haven't I haven't missed them. I haven't had, if there was a compelling reason for me to switch, I would do it. And it just I haven't found it yet. Yeah, and now we're getting extensions in Safari. And, yeah, they don't work very well yet and they're kind of limited but um it'll be interesting to see what happens with the uh, safari extensions yeah I, ha- I haven't loaded any of them yet i just haven't had the time but i'm interested to see where that goes but you you said you use the google apps you use the google calendar and google mail but do you, do you use those through iCal and apple mail yeah yeah i um yeah mail is talking to to uh gmail um i, I i'm not a believer Yet in the Gmail interface, I, I prefer Apple Mail to, to Gmail. I may get over that eventually. Adam Angst, I think, got over that. And he uses the web interface now. And I'm not a big fan of mail, but, um, uh, you know, one thing at a time, switching, you know, switching uh, parts of my mail uh, lifestyle, like embracing IMAP, that took a while. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready to go to just the web interface for, uh, for mail. So I'm going to have to wait on that score. Also, I have a personal mailbox and a work mailbox and you know Gmail doesn't in- integrate them and Apple Mail does and for me that's kind of a uh, a must have I'm not really willing to have two windows that I have to switch between to get my personal mail and my work mail I- I'd rather not if I can avoid it and I can by using mail and I count the same way I- I'm using I go back and forth. I'm using BusySync most of the time to sync um, my iCal with uh, with Google Calendar, and then my iPhone and my iPad are synced directly with Google Calendar via the Exchange Active Sync stuff that the Google Mobile features that they've got. Um, and our company is has moved to Google Apps. I, I've been on Google Apps on my private domain for a while, but our company is moving there too. So um, it's all start of sort of uh, pushing in that direction. But the nice thing is that you know. Mail and iCal work really well with Google Apps. It's not perfect, but it works pretty well. So um, that's actually what we're sort of standardizing on here. If you want, if you're using another one on Google Apps, is is uh, Mail and iCal. You, you got to try BusyCal though. They, you know, the, not BusySync, but BusyCal. I, I tried BusyCal and I didn't. You know, I like I love those guys, and the interface didn't really work for me. Um, I will try it again sometime. I have it on my system, but um, it you know iCal seemed smoother to me than BusyCal, which seemed a little bit kind of, you know, a little more rough edges around it. But it is, you know, it kind of designed to natively uh, just sync with Google Calendar, and that appeals to me. So I may, um, once we're fully up and running on Google Apps here, I, I may go back and give it a shot again. Well, it, it's got a lot of polish since it first came out, and you can turn off some of those bells and whistles. That's what turned me off of it initially. It looked like kind of 1985 or something, you know. <laughs> 
when you saw yeah. all those oh, icons yeah, it was, and everything. Well, it was like now up to date, circa you know nineteen ninety one kind yeah. of thing. But uh, if you turn that stuff off, it's it's a pretty good pretty good app. I like it. While we're talking about um, uh, mail and contacts and calendars, I wanted to get, just because I'm sure our listeners will will write in and ask, a little more information about how you're using your mail system. I know you mentioned you've got everything archiving into Gmail. So are you using any kind of archiving program? How are you saving? Sounds like me. You save pretty much every piece of mail you get. Um, yes. How, so, how does that work? Well, I mean, the nice thing about Gmail is you just, you just archive it and it, it's archived. I mean, basically you press delete in mail and it stays in the archive up on the server. Right. Um, so uh, for the old stuff, um, there was a, um, Google has a utility that's called like Google Mail Uploader or something that you can basically um, use to upload old mail uh, into your Gmail mailbox. And it takes a while, <laughs> quite a while, <laughs> but uh, it does it does work pretty well. So after... Uh, a few days of kind of concentrated uploading, I managed to get most of my mail, you know, back for years into my uh, Gmail archive, um, where it's searchable fully, you know, Google searchable. searchable. So um, I have, um, you know, I, I've got some keyboard shortcuts in mail via the mail act on plugin for mail that used to file things into folders, then they filed things into IMAP folders. I feel like I'm getting to the point now where pretty much everything I'm just going to archive. And and uh, uh, although what I may do is create a, uh, you can create a, I think it's a label in Gmail and mark it as a mailbox in IMAP. And then um, basically uh, when I want to file a message, I file it in there. And uh, what that really does is it archives it and puts a label on it. But in, in Apple Mail, what it may, basically does is it puts it in a, a mailbox that mail syncs with Gmail. So you've got a local copy so you can search and find it fairly fast. Um, I'm still figuring all of that out. Um, but, um, that, that's what I'm working toward. It's just, you know, if I need to find something, I should be able to find it either in mail or in, uh, in the web interface in Gmail if I really need it. And the nice thing about that is that if I'm on the go and I've just got the iPad or the iPhone, I can get into Gmail and search for search my archive, which is something I couldn't do if I had a Eudora mailbox from, 1995 on an external backup drive somewhere. Now it's just up on Gmail. Yeah. And Google IMAP is not the same as everybody else's IMAP. And that makes it a little. It's weird. It is weird and it is hinky. And I'm not quite sure if I like it because Google views mail different than IMAP views mail, even though they have an IMAP interface. Um, So the, they have this concept of labels as mailboxes, but in reality, labels aren't mailboxes. They're tags um, but you know, IMAP wants mailboxes. So that's how it works is if you drag a message into a mailbox, an IMAP mailbox in Apple mail, when you go up on Gmail, what you'll find is that it's in the archive, but it's got that, the label that is the name of the mailbox you dragged it into a- attached to it. Um, so it's similar, but it's, it's different. It's, it's weird. It's weird, but it, it's usable. Yeah. Do you have any of the uh, security concerns that people are bringing up in terms of your life being in Google? Or do you just figure what's going to be is going to be, go for it? Uh, I have some concerns, but um, not enough to to outweigh the, you know, if, if Google is going to destroy us, they're going to destroy us in a velvet coffin. You know, <laughs> we'll be buried in the velvet coffin. We'll be very comfortable. We'll die happy. 
Um, and that's sort of how I feel. It's like it's so convenient. I used to run my own mail server. I have all this mail that's filling up my hard drive and I don't have room for it anymore. And then I look at Gmail and I'm like, look, I can just upload it there and search it and it's fine. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I have some concerns, but I just sort of, uh, they're not enough for me to be, uh, to not take advantage of the the value of the features that they're that they're providing. Now that said, you know I'm not going to put a mission critical secret document in Google Docs. It's not going to happen. But um, for my mail, uh, you know, mail isn't particularly secure anyway. So I'm not going to send a message that I worry that might be discovered at a future time. I would never send that in an email anyway. That's what the phone is for. Mm-hmm. Or the payphone down at the corner, or whatever. You guys have payphones I mean, in California. Don't, don't put it. No, no, that's the proverbial pay, mafia payphone. Gotcha. Um, don't put it in writing, and and that doesn't change when it's on Google. So people will do stupid stuff and put stuff into Google that they're worried might be disclosed by a leak or by a hacker. But you know, I'm not sure our our mail system was secure before. I mean, we're still open. It was still open to the public. You didn't have to VPN in or anything. I mean, you're only as secure as your passwords, anyway. You know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer by day and so is Katie. And I mean, one of the first things I always do in litigation is I discover all the email. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's amazing. Your email's email not safe from a subpoena. Well, that's right. No matter where it is. That's absolutely the case. Absolutely. So, so you've got hackers can get to you either way. I mean, there's a different vector. Maybe they can get to Google servers, but they can also get to the passwords of the RIT guys. Or RIT guys can just get our our mail. It's relatively easy for them to do that if they really wanted to. And then legally, it doesn't matter where it is, really, as long as it exists, because it is, as you said, not safe from a subpoena. So, so yeah, I mean, is Google secure? No, but I'm not sure that anything really is. And if you're that worried about it, you should take more extraordinary measures, like not sending in an email or encrypting a file before you send it. In terms of uh, general security, uh, I know you used to carry around um, a MacBook Air, you know, all the time. Um, just in terms of securing your data on your Mac from someone who may find or steal, or, or what kind of security measures um, are you taking? Well, that do you is, recommend that. That is a great question because um, I don't. Oop. <laughs> um, well, you know when when. Uh, I mean, that's the reality is that I, I, I find uh, like encrypted files so inconvenient that there's almost nothing that I do that with. I have my spreadsheet of the salaries of everybody who works for me in an encrypted disk image. Um, that's about it. Honestly, I don't even have a password on my iPhone. Mm-hmm. Too inconvenient. I got yelled at for that. Uh, that's yeah. bad. That's bad. You don't want to do that. You got to put a password on that thing. Yeah. Yeah, it would be nice if they had a feature in there that was like it would sense when you're home versus when you're not home because it's really annoying to have to type it in at home. But, you know, when you're out in the road, you, you don't want that. You mean like some kind of location awareness? Maybe they could do that with like a GPS signal Interesting. or a Wi-Fi hotspot? Huh. Maybe there's an app for that. I don't know. But, you know, when you've got like, for instance, Dropbox, I mean, I, I don't want people to get into my Dropbox if uh, I lose my phone or my iPad. Well, I change, if I change my Dropbox, I change all my passwords if I lost my iPhone or my iPad. Yeah. But oh, hopefully, yeah, it, it's for me again. It's one of those things I know I should do it, but it's it's not convenient enough. It's just bottom line. It's like one. Pa- I use one password now for all my passwords on my Mac, and uh, so they're all they're all encrypted. And and what pushed me over the edge with that is that you know it's pretty convenient. It's it's yeah. an inconvenience that I'm willing to go through. And 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 at work, you know, I, I I've got a password on my Mac, so it will stop casual peeking in. But, it, you know, I don't have 
an encrypted disk image somewhere with all the key things on my Mac, and I don't have a and I don't have a password on my my uh, iPhone or my iPad. It's just you know, I, I think of the amount of risk I'm taking and I balance it against having to enter in a code every time I want to open the thing, which is like dozens of times a day. And I just decide, you know, it's just there's nothing on here. If people want to know my mom's phone number when they steal my phone. All right. I'll change all my passwords. I'll wipe the device remotely. Yeah, you know, that's maybe a function of what I do for a living because I, you know, I, I have stuff. We tend on to my- be paranoid. Yeah, I don't have a lot of confidential information, honestly. Exactly. I don't. Well, I, I bit the bullet a couple of years ago and, and put the PGP on, and it is very convenient. You only see it when you when you start your Mac, and it does a great job. So if you ever decide to go down that road, I, I would recommend checking that out. Right. I'm sure you guys have probably covered it over Yeah, there. oh yeah, we have. We have. It's And it may be more convenient now than it was back then. But it's also a function exactly right of what, what you think you have to lose and what you think that, that there's an expectation of security and privacy. And if I was a lawyer, um, I would absolutely do that but i'm i'm not and there, and it's very rare that i have something that i i have to keep a secret about that that would be like terrible if it fell into the wrong hands it's incredibly rare um yeah. so for me like i said i'm smart enough to know that if i got a spreadsheet with everybody's salary information in it that i don't want that on a file on my hard drive where somebody could just double click and open it and so yeah, it's I, not i speak at the uh, american bar association they have this tech show it's kind of like the law nerd convention you know, every year in Chicago. And <laughs> there was a guy there who was talking about how um, he was an ethics investigator for one of the state bars. Yeah. Some attorney had all his stuff on a thumb drive and he didn't encrypt it. And somebody found it and posted it on the internet and got the guy in a whole bunch of trouble. And, uh, but you know, it's just a different world I live in. So I guess I need to back off a little well, that, bit. Well, that's, well, I mean, this is, that, that's a good point that, that um, people need to know what they're, you know what? Think about this, right? If you think about it and decide you're gonna you're gonna not bother, that's one thing. But if you don't think about it, that's that's the problem. And so, letting getting people to think about security and think about what do I have to lose and what do I have to to keep a secret and um and that's really serious. I mean, a few years ago, we reviewed a uh, a product that sold itself as a secure hard drive um, that you had to um, enter a code in or use a thumbprint or something like that to, in order to unlock the drive. And um, we basically gave it a, 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 a one out of five rating. We basically gave it an F because it turned out that the drive, the, the, um, the locking happened in the mechanism or in the, um, in the interface and not in the hard drive. So all you had to do, if, if you put, imagine you put all your company's most secret data on it and then a thief stole, uh, stole the drive. What would they have to do to get at the data? Uh, screwdriver. screwdriver. Pop the case. Pop the case and stick it somewhere else and it was fine. And the company that made that drive was furious at us for our negative review but the fact is they had been marketing it as a secure product and it was not secure. I mean, fundamental failure right there. And the fact was, six months later, they had a product that, um, that uh, encrypted all the data on the drive. Well, and that was a truly secure product. So security, you know, if you think about it, that for me, that's the big deal. Is you just got to think about it. You, you, if you think about it and make a decision that you're not going to be secure, so be it. How about all this uh, Twitter and social media stuff? Do you have preferred apps you like to use for that? I'm using um, I'm using Twitterific on the desktop, as old and decrepit as it is, because it's simple and it, I I don't feel like uh, you need a giant dashboard for Twitter. It's Twitter. It should be little and in the corner and only occasional. Um, uh, on my iPhone, I use um, I am using the official client, formerly Tweety, mm-hmm. um, 
and on my iPad, I'm using Twitterific for iPad, which I really love. I think is a, is is great, and I I um, am looking forward to them rolling that stuff into the a new version for the desktop because the desktop version is definitely kind of old and gray. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm using Twitterific in a couple places and Tweety slash Twitter for iPhone in in another place, and and then on the iPhone, I like the Facebook app, and I actually do use Facebook a little bit. I have some friends who are only on Facebook, so I find them there. Um, and it's a beautiful app. I actually think that I was telling somebody I wish there was Facebook for the um, iPad. And they said, well, what do you mean? You can just view the Facebook mm-hmm. web page on the iPad. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I think Facebook's better as an app than a web page. I, I actually think the ultimate um, version of Facebook so far is the iPhone app. And maybe that's because I don't play Farmville or Mafia Wars. But um, I think the Facebook I- iPhone app is fantastic. And um, I much I would much rather use it than the um, than the website. A little empathy for these developers. Apple keeps throwing new platforms at them. I mean, first you're making it for the Mac, and then you have to make the iPhone version. Now you're making the iPad version. Now oh, you yeah. need to make the, the iPhone high definition version. <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. These guys are, are going to be well. Yeah, the good news is it's three platforms they can sell apps on as opposed to one. But um, you know, right, and I, they don't have to be. The code can be largely the same, right? I mean, that that's the thing is it, it's not quite three different versions. Or, or two different versions. Like Twitterific, I think the next version of Twitterific is, is iPad, iPhone, you know, combo pack. So, yeah. you know, you're seeing more of that. Um, and those will also run on the iPhone 4. So it's yep, getting better. Yep. But you know Craig is going to, like, put the stuff in there to make it optimized for the iPad versus optimized for the iPhone. I mean, the good developers well, the are U- gonna- The UI, but the code behind it doesn't have to be different. I mean, yeah. the, you, you basically build two different UIs, and then you've got the same underlying code. Uh, which I think is what they're doing with Twitterific. Absolutely. Well, we've been gone about an hour. I still have a ton of stuff that I could ask you, but before we leave, I definitely want to know, how has the iPad changed your life and your workflow? Because it sounds like it's, it's helped you go from primarily a laptop to primarily a desktop. How is that all working? Yeah. So, so that's the big and surprising change for me is it, it, it made me, what I discovered is that there were lots of things I did at home, uh, at the end of the day, that were not things that required a laptop. They were checking email, answering some email, looking on Twitter, looking on the web, uh, going to IMDb and looking up who that who that guy is. Hey, that guy looks familiar. Where where have we seen him before? It's like the reason for IMDb. Um, and so I, I I would find my laptop was not being used when I came home. I would just leave it in the bag the whole night and then take it back to work the next morning, which seems silly. Um, because there are certain tasks we do that are these internet tasks. And up to now, that meant using a computer or maybe your, your iPhone. Um, and the iPad fits in there, and, so, and, and it's a device that lets you do all those internet tasks, but it's not quite a computer. Um, so, so that's a way that it's definitely changed my, uh, my workflow and has had the end result of me having thrown more things in the Dropbox just to keep them, you know, to keep the laptop at home and the desktop at work and not travel with the same system back and forth. And I anticipate the other way that the iPad's really going to change my workflow is in travel, that I'm not going to have to bring a laptop to a lot of places, that I'll, I'll either bring uh, just the iPhone or I'll bring the iPhone and, and the iPad and, and maybe a keyboard. Um, when I went to, my wife and I took a tri- trip to England in 2000 and I had a Palm 3 back then with a fold-up keyboard. And at the end of every day, I would, I would sit down with that and I would write a little journal of what we did that day and I generated a you know, really nice trip journal and um, I always think back to that trip because there hasn't been something like that that would let you actually do some writing but super lightweight. 
Um, and with the iPad and, and uh, an external keyboard, I feel like we've got that again. And I'm excited about that, of not having to bring my laptop on a trip, on a vacation. Um, and if I really need to write something, I can, but I, I don't need to bring the laptop to do that. So that's a little more anticipatory than anything else. But I'm looking forward to doing less laptop travel. Yeah, I had the exact same experience. I used to travel a lot for work and I'd get on the plane and opening my $1,500 laptop top you know next to somebody who's having a martini just never seemed to make much sense to me and you know it was a macbook pro it was really big and so i always had this little fold-up bluetooth keyboard in my palm trio and that's the one thing on the iphone that used to just drive me nuts is that i could never go back to that and now finally right. we're getting there again after right. three. you can do it on the iphone with ios 4 which is actually nice and yet yeah. it's sort of been blunted by the fact that I'll probably bring the iPad <laughs> and just use that instead. But you could, you know, you will be able to type on the iPhone too. I was going nuts. I used to write posts. I wrote a haiku once about it. How bad I needed a keyboard for my iPhone. And now people are writing me and saying, hey, you can do it now. And I don't really care so much. Right. Not the iPad. <laughs> but a little too late there, Apple. But uh, anyway. Any, they- pro- sorry. Uh, any particular apps that you're using uh, on your iPhone or your iPad to kind of facilitate working amongst all the devices and then you, you know, mentioned dropbox well dropbox and um i'm using goodreader as a pdf um viewer mostly although it re it views other files too and that is great because it's got server connectivity support it'll connect to dropbox it'll connect to uh, ftp servers and you can also just attach it to any mac or pc you you attach it to and and drag files into it over itunes so it's got a bunch of different ways to get files on it and um so Goodreader is the other app that I that I really am using um, in concert with Dropbox, and um, you know Instapaper, which is sort of the ultimate portability thing of of reading a story and saying I this is too long I need to read this later and pressing the button to add it to Instapaper and then reading that on the iPad, which is a really pleasant experience. So I, I think Instapaper and Goodreader are two really good examples of apps that are uh, allowing me to sort of extend. Um, the my kind of universe of files onto the iPad from the from the desktop pretty easily. Okay, we're going to get into some of Jason's favorite applications, but before we do, let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor, One Password. Uh, about an hour before we recorded the show, I got an email from a reader at maxsparky.com who was bemoaning the fact that his passwords had been broken. So you know, I wrote him back, and and turns out that the guy had two passwords. You know doing exactly what we told everyone not to do during the security episode. He had, you know, two passwords in his mind. One uh, complex, so, one simple. One yeah, for those well, forms that make you do this, one for the forms that make you do that. Well, in this case, neither one was very complex. And so somebody figured out one of them and broke into about five or six of his accounts. Oh. And uh, it was just a big mess. And, and I wrote him back and said, listen, you know, you gotta, if you read me, you've got to know about one password. And if you listen to Mac Power users, you've got to know about one password. You would not have that problem with this application because it creates a secure password for you for every new website, banking site, everything you log into. It creates it for you. It keeps track of it. It allows you to have the password discipline we all know we're supposed to have, but everybody was too lazy to have until this application came along. I think it's a great app, one password, um, and it allows you to, to solve that problem of having just a couple passwords that are easily broken and you know causing all kinds of mischief. And it's getting a lot easier too. I I was hesitant to really let one password take control of all of my passwords. I tried to use different passwords 
Um, but I was really hesitant to let 1Password create my passwords for me just for fear of, gosh, I'm going to be sitting somewhere and I'm not going to be able to remember what my 32 character or whatever it is, you know, password was. But that's gotten a lot easier now. Now that you've got 1Password on the iPad, you've got 1Password on the iPhone, you've got the 1Password plugin for your Mac machines, and now you've got 1Password in beta for the PC, there's really no excuse not to be using it. No, there really isn't. And, you know, it's not too expensive. Uh, it's was $40 for 1Password 3 license. Uh, in addition to storing and creating passwords, you can save secure information with notes. You can save your banking information, your credit cards, your personal logins. Uh, you know, it's just, it took me no time at all. As soon as I, I realized what they had put together, I was in. And I've been using it a couple years now. I have no regrets. So you can find 1Password along with some other projects that Agile Web Solutions is working on. Uh, their Mac version, their PC version, their iPod and iPhone versions over at OnePassword.com. And we want to thank Agile Web Solutions and 1Password for their sponsorship of the show. You know, one thing I want to hit, you can do this fast depending on the time or, or you can go into more details. But um, what are your favorite apps, your favorite tools, kind of must-have uh, things on the Mac that, that help you get your stuff done? Wow. Um, that is a, that is a, a big question. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll wait while you scroll through your application folder. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, well, I actually did a, um, I did a, uh, a presentation about this on, uh, on one of our, these cruises that we sponsor. Um, and so I'll give you the quick rundown. Um, I use one, like I said, I use one password um, to store my, my all my passwords and only have to remember the one password. I use Click to Flash in Safari to um, not auto load Flash movies and only play them when I want to see them. Amen, brother. Yeah. Um, default folder, which is probably the piece of soft Mac software I've been using the longest. I bought it in college, <laughs> um, which is a great little. Um, it's a system uh, preference pane that um, you can basically set that when you choose open or save from an app, it takes you to a very specific folder that you get to set. You can say, put it on the desktop or this app, I want it to open in this folder. So you can um, navigate uh, faster to the places where you tend to save files. And it also has some other great features, including the ability to sort of move your mouse over a folder that's open in the finder and click. And it automatically switches your open or save dialog box to that folder. So it's, a, it's just a time saver and I've been using it forever. Um, yeah, it's got those favorites too. Those are really great. Yeah, it's a, it's and it keeps track of where you've been, so you can kind of find that folder you were in five minutes ago. Um, I mentioned Drag Thing, which I still use as a launcher, mostly for mostly for um, uh, file servers and FTP servers and other stuff like that. I sort of throw them all in Drag Thing tabs and and use it for that. And on my new two monitor setup here at work, I've got it acting as a dock on my main monitor because. Apple's dock wants to go all the way off to the right onto my auxiliary monitor, which is mm -hmm. annoying. So it, drag thing creates sort of a, a pseudo dock on the main screen. But it, I don't use it as an app launcher. I use LaunchBar from um, Objective Development, which um, if I only could have one utility, it would be LaunchBar, I think. I feel totally naked and exposed when I'm using a Mac that doesn't have LaunchBar because I've just built up the muscle memory to hit command space and start typing things and launching apps and doing searches and finding documents. So... I, yeah, I, I couldn't do, live without LaunchBar. Yeah, have you I been listening to our podcast? I haven't been. <laughs> no. You LaunchBar devotees too? Oh, I am. Yeah. Am I just saying things you've already? No, okay, go so for I'm not going to surprise you. 
Um, That's great. I was going to say, I even I do the launch bar key combination on a Windows machine because I'm just, you know, yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> um, uh, Freedom by Fred Stutzman has been getting a lot of exposure lately. And it's a really cool app that basically shuts off your network uh, for an arbitrary amount of time until you reboot or until the time passes. And the idea there is if you really need to get some work done and not be on the Internet, you run Freedom and say, give me 10 minutes without the Internet. And it. You know, you can you can bypass it by restarting, but then you have to waste the time to restart your Mac. And the idea is that's enough of a hurdle that you don't do it. So um, I like I like that app and I've used that occasionally. What else? Um, There's a great little app called Menu Calendar Clock um, from Object Park Software that um, replaces your Mac menu bar with a uh, a clock. Uh, Your Mac menu bar clock replaced with this new clock that. It's still a clock, but if you click on it, a uh, calendar comes down, and it's your iCal calendar. And so you can see sort of at a glance without iCal being open what's on your schedule, and you can make new new events right from within that interface. Um, I love that. I use that all the time. It's really increased my use of, of uh, my iCal calendars by having it available as a quick sort of thing. Um, I use sizzling keys for my um, uh, iTunes controller to map it to keyboard shortcuts. Um, I don't know if you've heard of sizzling keys. It's never heard of that. It's uh, there, actually it's free. And then there's a five buck like pro version, but it's a, uh, it's the thing I use so that I can set my keyboard shortcuts for pause and play and volume and stuff like that on iTunes, um, which is great. Um, uh, even though I've got media keys on some keyboards, I, I basically built up the muscle memory like 10 years ago for the, this control panel I had in, in, uh, the old in the classic Mac OS that controlled playing and pausing a CD that was in your CD drive. And I, I just, I've never wanted to change the keys and sizzling keys. I can just map my keys to that and it controls iTunes and it's great. Um, I use slim battery monitor uh, instead of the regular battery monitor in my, in my menu bar. It's just, it, it tells you um, if you're on a laptop, it tells you um, uh, your battery information, but it's more configurable. So it'll, um, it, it'll tell you that your char- it can display one way when you're charging and one way when you're drained and one way when you're full. Um, and it's stupid, but, you know, I, I like it. It's free and it is better than the one that Apple provides, I think. Um, likewise, um, Unplugged. I don't know if you've seen that, but Unplugged is this free app. And all it does is tell you if your uh, power cord gets unplugged or plugged in if you're on a laptop. And I know that seems dumb, but boy, it happens to me all the time where uh, my MagSafe connector comes undone and I don't know it or it's still there, but it's not connected anymore and the battery would run down. And now um, when that thing comes unplugged, a little um, growl notice actually shows up in the middle of my screen that says unplugged. And I go, oh, geez, it's unplugged. And I plug it back in and <laughs> it saves my battery. As stupid as that sounds, it, it saves my battery. So um, I, I guess those are the ones that are, are sort of the the little little app uh little add-ons that i use all the time wow i've got some downloading to do (laughs) i'm glad i had that list handy yeah we'll have to put those in the show notes oh we will all of them well jason what else do you do on your mac uh that we haven't talked about today we've covered quite a bit i i kind of feel like we've uh we've uh covered all the covered all the bases i I don't know what else there is it's you know it's writing and editing and calendar and mail and all that all that stuff so so now we've documented the uh 
the Snell workflows for 2010. <laughs> I am sitting in front of a computer screen a lot. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sure like the work you do. I mean, the, your articles you. and reviews are outstanding. And the, what we did an RSS show, I don't know, a couple months ago, and one of the points I made is, you know, you don't need a lot of RSS feeds. If you're interested in the Mac, just subscribe to the Mac world, and you're going to find out everything that you need to know pretty oh, that's, much. That's very it. nice. Um, that's very nice. And actually that brings up a point, um, that I didn't make. We, we didn't talk about my RSS reader cause I don't have one. Oh, cause I don't, I, I, I use, um, you create read- enough content. You don't need to consume any. Well, I, I, I actually have a couple of, um, tab groups in Safari that I open occasionally. And, um, and I, I use Twitter as sort of my auxiliary newsreader and that's I don't, I just don't, I, I've been using Reader a little bit on my iPad, um, and that's been okay. But I've just never RSS. Yeah, maybe I've, I'm I'm sort of in the middle of it, so I get stuff fed to me all the time, and I, I just I never felt like I could ever even catch up with my RSS. So um, I'm not an RSS guy, and I know that's like heresy to say that, but it's just I, it's never. You know, you wait a couple of days, and you've got a 1,500 new missing items and or unread items, and you just say forget it and give up. <laughs> Can't wait a couple I like days. That. I kind of like that you have no RSS. That's you know, that's kind of cool. That's old I, school, brother. I, I I get a lot of links. You know, I, Twitter actually. I, I I'm I'm not really kidding. I found that Twitter has has become a really great news source for me, where people post links and I click through and and. But it also helps that yeah, I mean, I'm in the Macworld Bloggers chat room where other people, presumably with RSS feeds, say, "Hey, check out this story." So I, in some ways, I'm not an, a typical user. I suspect as the editor of Macworld, when something interesting happens... Um, Somebody tells me about it. Yeah. find out pretty quick. <laughs> well, Jason, thank you very, very much. It's It's been an honor to have you on the show, and it, it's been really interesting hearing about your history with the Mac. And um, uh, some of mine is very similar, because I was a, an old uh, yearbook and uh, newspaper geek. And that's how I got my start back on PageMaker before it was Adobe. It was was it oldest PageMaker? Oldest PageMaker, yes, yeah. absolutely. And yeah, a lot of us started that way. Used used the wax and had an old Mac Plus and just thought I was in hog heaven. Yep, those are the days. So, um, but Jason, where can where can people find your stuff? Uh, Twitter, MacWorld, whatever you want to share. Um, on Twitter, I'm Jay Snell. Uh, and at MacWorld.com, you can find you know that's that's where I do my business day to day. And, you know, that's basically the, that's the best place to find me for now. I, I, I've had, you know, other websites that I've done from time to time and, and maybe they'll come back around and podcasts that I do. And, but, you know, Macworld is uh, it and you can always find me on Twitter. So that's the best place to reach me if you're uh, curious about what I'm doing and, you know, if I make the waffles for my kids. Yeah, I, l- I like your Twitter feed. I, I follow your Twitter feed, Jason, and it's real eclectic. I like that. You're just huh. not always talking about the Mac. You're talking about into other stuff. And it's, Very it's early on, I made the decision that my I was going to sort of experimentally try to have the Twitter feed not be a just work or just personal, but a combination and see how that went. And I'm not sure how it how it's going. And I occasionally get a note from somebody who says, I follow you for technology. I don't want to hear about this personal stuff. And the answer is then you should follow Macworld instead because – I just, for whatever reason, have decided to kind of merge them together. And I hope that gives people a little bit of a sense of who I am and what I'm doing and not just sort of, I'm not just sort of pimping articles on my Twitter feed. So thank you for saying that. Well, don't change anything. It's perfect. Thank you. Okay, Jason. Well, thanks for coming in and sharing your workflows with us. Hopefully we can have you back someday. And uh, we all look forward to seeing you this year at Macworld as well. I'm sure you'll be there in uh, January. And uh, 
I bet you've got your work cut out for you the next few weeks with uh, it's certain. It's going to be going. busy. Before we move on, I do want to thank our final sponsor for the evening, Fuse Meeting. Now, I have seen more and more of these meeting type solution, virtual meeting type solutions being used uh, in everyday life. I think a lot of it has to do with kind of the economy. I think a lot of it has to do with um, the price of traveling. I think a lot of it has to do that the technology is getting really good now that there's really, I mean, unless you're trying to uh, meet and greet and socialize with clients, there's really no reason you can't have your own meetings virtually. Uh, and I think Fuse Meeting has got some great product offerings to do just this. Um, Fuse Meeting is is a virtual meeting environment. It is browser-based, so you don't have any special software that you have to download. And all of that data that you would normally print up into a big glossy binders with uh, colorful presentations, you can save the ink, you can save the paper, you can save the trees, and you can upload all of your media up to Fuse Meeting in a high resolution uh, before the meeting starts. People yeah, in, can, a, in a lot of ways, it's superior to sitting down with someone because when you're working with computer and graphics-based assets, everybody can have their hands on the keyboard at the same time. So people can be making annotations. Uh, they can go in and you know uh, mark sections if they want to make changes. And there's free stuff. If you sign up for it at FuseMeeting.com slash Mac, and uh, you sign up for a 30-day trial. If you subscribe, you get a $25 gift certificate. Uh, and that's not, I'm sorry, you get a $25 iTunes gift card. And I've already re- uh, heard from some listeners that have done this, and they really like the product. So you should go check it out at FuseMeeting.com slash Mac. And thanks, Fuse Meeting, for your support of the show. Well, this has been an absolute blast. I want to thank once again Jason Snell for uh, coming on and being one of our workflows guests. You can, of course, find all of Jason's stuff over at macworld.com. And you can find all of our stuff over at our website that no longer has the little dancing ants, right, David? Yes, I I killed all the ants. (laughs) Over at www.macpowerusers.com. While you're there, you can check out uh, links to everything that Jason, uh, David, and I discussed in the show notes. Uh, and also check out the pretty cool artwork that we've got on our new banner. Yeah, you know, I'd like to ask the listeners to go check out the MacPowerUsers.com website. If you haven't been there, I know that I listen to a lot of podcasts where I never visit the website. Uh, the MacPowerUsers.com is really turning into a resource. We're getting a lot of really good comments, uh, knowledgeable and insightful comments from listeners, sometimes telling us when we're wrong and and making suggestions. And I think it's really a great resource. So if you listen to a show in particular that you liked, make sure to go check out the comments. You may learn a little bit more. Yes. And we did learn, for example, that it is NTFS. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I knew it was NTFS. We're talking about our Windows in a, a Mac in a Windows world episode where we said NTSF format about 15 20 times. times. Yeah. <laughs> we know. And we know. I knew that. I had it written down in the outline correctly. And, I guess I was just nervous or, uh, you know, whenever I talk about windows, it, you know, makes me a little, it does you know, give edgy. you the willies a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, but if you have other things that you would like to correct us on, or if you just want to give us your feedback on the show, we love to hear that. Uh, you can send an email to both David and I, and it will go to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And you can also follow us 
on Twitter. Uh, are we are Mac Power users on Twitter. Right. Uh, and if you enjoy the show, uh, if you have an opportunity, we love iTunes comments. I can't tell you uh, how happy it makes me when I go into iTunes and check out the comments after not having been in there for a while and 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 see the things that our, our listeners post. Uh, gives me kind of a, a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. And not only does it make David and I feel better, but it also uh, helps us to get some more exposure. Uh, more exposure is more listeners, and uh, we like to see that. Definitely. So what are we going to do next, Katie? All right. Next time, uh, I'm, I'm hoping this works out. This was my show idea, and I'm getting a little nervous about it, cause, but I think it's going to be great, is the Mac Gadgeteer. Thank you, David, for the title. And basically what we're going to talk about is all of the gadgets we have that are related to our Macs or perhaps how we're using our Macs in non-traditional ways. So this is pretty much the episode uh, where we talk about everything else around your house that interfaces uh, with your Mac and how we're using it. So uh, it's it's definitely going to have a Mac slant because everything we're going to talk about is going to interface and relate to the Mac, but it's not necessarily going to be an episode about the Mac. I have a strange suspicion that a lot of our listeners are like us and they have lots of electronic stuff in their house. Yeah, in their house, around their lives, in their cars. Uh, we're we're going to try to talk about that. And if you have any suggestions, because David and I are only two geeks, we can't possibly cover everything, uh, would really appreciate it if you would drop us a line at feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Let us know how you're using interesting gadgets around your life uh, with your Mac, and we'll try to add that to the outline for the show. Well, Katie, I think we had another good workflow episode. I'd like to thank Jason Snell for giving us his time, and I'd like to thank the listeners for sticking with us as we work through some of these new formats and ideas for the show. We've had a great time doing it, and we love hearing all this feedback from people that enjoy some of the new ideas we've been using. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a great learning experience. So it's been fun. Thanks, David. <laughs>